This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to Panel Borders on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch and this is Resonance's monthly show about comics, graphic novels and sequential art. In today's program, I'm talking to three comic book artists who have created fantastical visions on the page. Later in the show, I'm talking to Zara Slattery about her graphic novel Coma, which depicts her experiences of extreme medical intervention as a journey through a fantastical dreamscape. However, to start off with, I'm interviewing artists Declan Shalvey and Staz Johnson while they were on stage at the Lakes International Comic Art Festival doing a live drawing session, taking inspiration from the audience on what comic characters they might live draw on stage. Shalvey and Johnson have worked on a number of titles across the years for both American and British publishers, and I'm talking to them about the various influences on their work, the various projects that they've worked on, and what they'd like to still accomplish in their careers. Staz, you started out uh, in Marvel UK on the um, Transformers comic. Yeah. How did you break into the industry? Were you sending kind of samples to publishers and hoping that someone might pick you up? Yeah, I was... Um, well, before um, Transformers, I was doing stuff for... Um, role-playing games magazines mm. and um, just uh, sending samples to 2000 AD and uh, basically anybody that I thought would hire uh, a cartoonist and, mm. uh, and then one day I just got a call back it was um, you know out of the blue really I think I'd sent something to um, the editor of Action Force, just mm. not really expecting because it didn't look like the kind of stuff that I was doing. I'd sent a bunch of sword and sorcery samples or something. Okay. But um, the editor obviously saw something in um, what I'd drawn and thought, well, he can draw a bit, we'll, we'll give him a go. And, and then I worked after that, I, I'd so worked pretty much non stop for Marvel UK for two or three years, I think. Mm. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. I mean, you're someone who's worked on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, on Marvel UK for 2000 AD for Titan, and then obviously on various American comics. Apart from the format, where obviously it's bigger pages, um, uh, there may be shorter strips when you're in an, in an anthology that's weekly. Mm. Is there much difference um, working for uh, publishers either in America or the UK? Um, not really. I mean, back in the day, it was... Um, I think it, it, there was more difference in, in the old days because um, it was more locally. Like when I was working for uh, like 2000 AD or Marvel UK, you could literally jump on the train and go down and see the, uh, the, the editors or whatever. Whereas when I started working on, on the American comic books, it was before the days of email and stuff. So it was, it was all very much um, you know, telephone calls and um, uh, faxes, <laughs> if you remember faxes. Yeah. Um, so it was. Um, it, it was. It felt there was much more. There was a distance there between yourselves and the, uh, which was nice in some ways because you, um, even though I was sort of drawing properties which were uh, were tied down, you, you couldn't just take liberties with them mm. um, b- because you didn't have an editor breathing over your shoulder the whole time. Mm. You almost felt like you, you could sort of get away with a little bit more. <laughs> um, but so I mean. It, 
and, and but these days there's almost no difference. I mean, mm. uh, you only con uh, contact editors via email or I mean, almost never even on the telephone these days. Mm. So whether you're working for somebody in in London or or New York or Los Angeles makes almost no difference. Well, apart from time, you know, mm. the time the time difference. Sure, uh, you know, getting emails in the middle of the night when you're working <laughs> for DC or something is. Um, uh, annoying mm. um, because, like, you you know, you're, you're working on something and you'll get up the following day and you find you get an email saying, "Oh, that thing that you've spent all evening doing it was wrong." Um, that doesn't happen very often, but, um, mm. but yeah. I mean, you're drawing um, a Viking right now, and you've worked on a number. Well, of I'm, I'm actually drawing Conan because I've, okay, I well, Conan, <laughs> Conan, you know. he's Vikingish. He's he? Vikingish. Oh, it is Conan. Um, uh, I'm looking at it from 90 degrees. Uh, but you worked on various licensed properties. I mean, obviously, when you're working in Transformers, presumably you had to look at the toys to a certain amount. When you've worked on various superhero comics, you know, you're not going to break the look of a character that's been established for a number of years. And with something like Vikings, because it's based on a TV show, you must have to kind of fit in with the look. How, how does that suit you? Um, like with, with the Vikings, when they asked me if I would do it, I'd never even seen that. I was vaguely aware that there was this show um, that the editor just accosted me at a convention said, oh, we're doing this Vikings comic, but would you be interested? And uh, just the idea, it was when he said Vikings, I just, I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't really aware of it, but just the name Vikings, I thought, God, that sounds cool. Mm. Um, so I, I immediately went out and bought all the DVDs and um, started watching through them. And... Um, I mean, I'm not a real one for likenesses, um, you know, of, of actors and that kind of thing. So it's not something that. Um, but I did make. I, I let the editors know. Look, you know, if, you, if you're wanting this to look exactly like, I can't remember the actors' names now. But if you want it to look like this person, it's not. That's not what I do. <laughs> but they, they they were fine with that. So I just you know, as long as it's vaguely recognisable as that same character, we're cool with that. And mm. to be fair to them, when you look at what I did. He doesn't really look much more than the hairstyles. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I got all the hairstyles right, but other than that, um, it's not really that. But there's never any. Um, and in fact, when I read the um, some of the reviews, which I try not to do, but occasionally you can't help yourself. And uh, reviewers said things like, "Oh, he's good on the line." Is like, really what, what you've seen that I'm not? But um, I guess they just look at hairstyles as well. Mm. You said that when you started out, you were kind of interested in uh, fantasy art, in role-playing games. What, what was your background when you were handing in those first kind of submissions to get picked up? Did you train in fine art or you kind of self-taught? No, no self-taught entirely. I mean, I when I was sort of um, at high school, I didn't, I didn't really know what... I mean, I always read comics, but it, it wasn't something that, that I saw comics as, a, as an avenue for a career or anything it was just um, I, I couldn't really imagine that anybody actually made money mm. drawing comics it just um, yeah it wasn't something I saw as an avenue as a career or anything it was just um, just something I, I did as, as, my, as a pastime and then I just happened to bump into somebody who knew a guy that was working for 2000 AD mm. and it was like oh right okay that's actually a job then that's yes. not it's not only because it, it seemed like all the only people that did that job had really exotic Names, you know, they obviously all came from New York or something. But when they found out, oh, there's a guy from Hull that does it, they think, wow. You know. <laughs> nice. Cool. Well, as uh, 
we've been joined uh, by Declan Shelby. It's interesting that you both have uh, kind of atypical, to a certain extent, um, entries into comics that you started off in the small press. And one of the very first titles, if not the first title that you illustrated, won an Eagle Award. That must have been quite a thing as a young creator. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, no, it was like I'd been, uh, I mean, coming from Ireland, there's really, at the time especially, there was nothing really going on. So I was, it was suggested I go to the UK. I went there and there was just so much stuff being done. Mm. I didn't really know what to make of it, but... Um, yeah, I think I, I talked to a writer, Andy Winter, and he basically said, you know, I can't really afford to pay you, but if you draw a book that I've written, I'll publish it, which seemed like a fair deal, because um, I had nothing done, really. But no, yeah, to, to get the eagle for the, my first published thing was crazy, mm. and uh, made me turn into the pretentious, uh, egocentric maniac <laughs> that I am now. Um, so presumably that did um, open a lot of doors. Did you then start sending your work to other publishers or because of the Eagle Award did someone start approaching you? I mean, it did and it didn't. Um, I think the thing with awards uh, for the one that I won uh, and never never any since, um, I think uh, they, they don't really do anything for you unless you do something with it. Mm. Um, like if you win an Eisner, that's great. But unless you use it to get a better page rate, then what's, it's kind of worthless, you know. Um, for the Eagle Award, I was just amazed. Like it was great entry for me because nobody would have known who I was or what I did. Um, and I was, I, I, uh, I was working in a in a basement of a comic shop. I had a studio there for a while, and um, I met an artist who was doing a book for classical comics, which were these. Um, mm. There were uh, graphic novel adap- adaptations of uh, of classical fiction uh, literature, like uh, Frankenstein and. Um, Hamlet and Roman Juliet. So yeah. actually, this is a Dracula book. Actually, mm, um, drew the hell out of it as well. Um, but uh, that was my first like proper gig, and it's not like the Eagle Award got it, but it <laughs> it didn't hurt that I said I'd mm. I gotten it. Um, again, I, I think I was I didn't realize I was smart enough to actually use it to some degree. But um, uh, yeah, I guess I guess it depends. Sorry, I forgot the question. Uh, no, just, you know, then what was the next move, you know, in terms of getting your work in front of publishers? But as you mentioned, Classical mm-hmm. Comics, their products are really interesting because they bring out three versions. Yeah. One with the complete text, well, I suppose as much as they can fit on the page. Uh, one with a simplified version and then one that's basically text messages. Um, and so knowing that you're creating the art, but there'll be three versions where the amount of text changes in the speech balloons, does that make it difficult at all that perhaps, you know, in one version, the art's going to tell the story more, and in another version, it's going to be the text. Um, I mean, I always try and do it in a way in which the artist is telling the story no matter what. Mm. I mean, I, I put lettering placements when I'm doing layouts, so I know that everything flows and who's talking and, the, and how the storytelling works. Um, I don't, like, put the words in telling with the letter what to do, but I always try and accommodate for the most possible space needed. Um, but, I mean... You're always the goal is always to like you're able to read a story with no words. Mm. Uh, if you can do that, then I think you're you're fairly you're fairly safe with whatever comes next. I think, mm. um, and those books. I mean, uh, mine was fine. It was a Frankenstein, but there were some like Shakespearean books, like oh, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I had it easy compared to those guys. But at the same time, I mean, Frankenstein obviously brings all its own challenges because people are used to Boris Karloff to uh, Christopher Lee. There are so many 
pre-existing visual representations? How do you do it in a way where you're kind of adding your own stamp? Um, well, first of all, this is for the first time I've been asked about that book in a long time. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that was a tough one because, you know, there's always the, you know, uh, it's not Frankenstein, it's Frankenstein's monster. And um, it's like, yeah, I know. Uh, and there were various interpretations. I mean, the really, I, I kind of went with the script more than anything else. Mm-hmm. I think I looked at the kind of Branagh film for some of the kind of like gory effects. We also don't want to do a film version. You don't want to do the film version in a comic. Yeah. Um, and also, it was actually surprising how, like, the book had very specific, as far as I can recall, it was like it was very well detailed, and nothing that had ever made it to film <laughs> really looked anything like it. So, it kind of made it a little bit easier, really. Um, uh, yeah. And then once I kind of had a way of figuring out how, to, I mean, over the course of the book, I got better at drawing, so some stuff just got more interesting. I got kind of more any kind of decayed as I went along. So, in a weird way, while I was developing as an artist, he was. <laughs> the monster was decaying at the same time so uh, you know, the one at the beginning is not the one at the end it's actually okay. quite clean at the beginning and at the end he's all just like you know zombified practically nice um, and then uh, and indeed I'll ask Stas the same question like a lot of British artists if you want to make a living in comics uh, you need to work for American publishers how did you get your foot in the door? Um, well as an Irish artist sorry I always have to qualify that um, <laughs> sorry well no no it's fine I mean look I started by coming to like there was nothing in Ireland so I had to come to the UK to to figure out what to do but um, as regards to the specific question how to break to break in into the American uh, market um, well I mean the internet changed kind of changed everything at the time I was starting out just like 10 years ago um, everything was going online in a way that hadn't really been before there were online communities uh, people were staying in touch via MySpace yeah, that's right. MySpace. Um, so if I went, I, I mean, I, I stepped up after having done UK shows. I stepped up and uh, went to to American ones, uh, and you know, you just start making contacts, talking to people, uh, getting your stuff out there. But um, I made a point of going to New York for a few months and trying to hit a few American shows. How did you break into the American? Um, I, I, uh, I was doing some stuff for Marvel UK. Um, it was sort of in the early 90s when they did the big... Uh, Liam Sharp was doing Death's Head and yeah. uh, they were just putting books out left, right and centre. And I did one of those. And, um, Death Wreck. Death Wreck is the one I did. <laughs> that, that well-forgotten book. And, um, and then they, they pulled the plug. The, the, I was supposed to do something else as soon as I finished it and then I got the call and said, oh, sorry, you know... We're done, um, but we're going to try. Um, every artist that worked for them they said, "Well, you're all going to get a ten pager in Marvel Comics Presents, or one of those kind of things." Mm. So I said, "Okay." Anyway, um, before that ten pager came, I'd sent some samples to the editor of Thor, and he, he just called back and said, "Do you want to do, you work for, work on Thor?" So I never, wow, I never got the, the ten pager, um, mm. but I did do um, a few issues of Thor, mm. and then and I'd worked for Marvel for about a year doing. Avengers and Spider-Man, one thing and another, just a bunch of fill-ins really, because it was, you know, the, yeah. if anybody was running late, do you, you want to do this? And then, I don't know how, I've got no idea, still to this day, I still don't know how, but somehow, somebody at DC got my, some samples or a phone number or something, and they, they kept ringing up, offering me, uh, they offered me Suicide Squad, mm. and, but I was doing a, a, a mini-series for Marvel, and they said, oh, do you want to do a fill-in on Suicide Squad? And my calculation was, well, I've got three issues for Marvel, but if I do the one issue for DC, then I'll blow that deadline. 
Hmm. So I've got three months work against one month's work. So I, I turned that down. Hmm. Then they offered me one issue on a Batman book. Same equation. I better turn that one down. It's only a month's work. And they must have thought, who does this guy think he is? Like he's turning down Batman books now. <laughs> so then eventually they, they called and said, do you want to do six months on detective comics? So I thought, okay then. <laughs> so and, it, and it's, to this day, I mean, I asked the editor, where did you get my, mm. my, my samples or, or my phone number or anything? And I think that, I don't know, maybe they just saw the stuff I'd done on Spider-Man. I, don't, I, don't, mm. I still don't know how they found out. So it was, I really kind of looked into it, really. Mm. Um, and it was only six months later that they realised that I didn't really know what I was doing. <laughs> As a comics fan back in the day, did you have any preference for Marvel and DC? Or Yeah, I was always a DC guy. Okay. Um, well, I was, a, I was always a Batman guy, to be mm. honest. I, and... I didn't really read um, many American comics. I was um, uh, my most of my comic reading as a kid was uh, British um, Commando and okay. that kind of thing. You know, uh, Victor and Battle, and it was. Um, and the only reason I got in, read Batman was because um, uh, of the TV show. Mm. You know, the Adam West TV show. So that was, when I first saw Batman comics, um, it, it didn't make sense to me because, to me, Batman was a television character, mm. not a, a comic book character. You know, comics were Dennis the Menace or whatever. <laughs> uh, Bat- Batman was a television thing. Mm. And so I sort of came into superhero comics almost through the back door, if you like, mm. um, as, a, as a supplement to the television show. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, but I mean, we're talking sort of, you know, early 70s at this point. Um, and then, uh, so that's probably why Batman was the one that sort of stayed with me because um, I didn't really, uh, all the other superheroes didn't really sort of, didn't resonate with me in mm. that sense. Um, I mean, I read them um, because, you know, you, when, you know, when you're sort of eight, nine years old, living in Yorkshire, you read anything, you know, you read any, any comic you can get. So, I mean, you know, you go to the, the, the market and you pick up a, like a Spider-Man comic or a Daredevil comic or, a, you know, a Blazing Combat, anything, you know, mm. you read any comic. Mm. Um, but the only one that really sort of, I kept going back to was, was Batman. Um, mm. I mean, I've had other, other sort of interests over the years, but I mean, I, I very rarely read any comics these days. And if I do, it, it tends to be... Um, uh, crime comics. Okay. Well, I mean, so when you were then offered that job on Detective, that must have felt kind of like a dream come true so early in your career. Well, it was, I mean, and and the fact that I turned down a, a Batman book is, to this day, <laughs> I, what gave me the audacity to do it, I don't know, but um, it was simply was a commercial decision. Mm. As far as I was concerned, you know, the Spider-Man thing was going to give me three months' work and mm. the... Um, the Batman book was only going to give me one month's work. Mm. Um, so that was why I uh, turned it down. But yeah, when I did start working in Detective, it was almost like, wow, you know, I've, something that I've done has become part of that canon. Mm. Um, a small part, obviously, but um, <laughs> it's still it's still there, you know. it's. Um, and then, of course, when I went, I went on to do uh, Robin for a long time, for three mm. years, um, so yeah, I mean it's, um, it's it's weird, really, when you think that something that you grew up loving as a six-year-old and you mm. think of doing it for a living, it's, it's it's not the sort of thing that 
Unless, you, unless a six-year-old decides he wants to be a policeman. You know, <laughs> most of us grow out of our six-year-old uh, fascinations. Well, and I imagine there are a number of people in the audience who are here because, as six-year-olds, they wanted to uh, draw or maybe be Batman um, and are inspired by the fact that actually you can do it. Well, yeah. Declan, uh, Stas was talking about the kind of comics that he grew up with. What were the ones that um, kind of formed your... Similar experiences. Um, well, I, I realised I didn't actually answer your question properly last time because well, I heard right. Stas's proper uh, answer. I was like, "Oh wait, I actually do have an answer to that." And um, uh, when I was I was trying to uh, break in, I went to a show in the states called mm. Heroes Con, and I'd been doing some Twenty Days Later stuff at the time, ah. um, and uh, which was good. It was American work, but it was like a small publisher. But um, I met Jeff Parker, who was writing Thunderbolts at Marvel. Mm. And he said, you know, I really like your stuff. You want me to send, if you want, I can send your stuff onto Marvel to a show. I said, ah, no, sure. No, I, couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't ask you to do that. He's like, you're not asking me. I'm, I'm offering. I was like, ah, no, no. It'd be, it'd be very rude of me like, to expect you to do that. He's like, I'm, you're not being rude. Like, I was being more rude by trying to not get him to do it. Um, so eventually I shut up and let him do it. <laughs> and... Um, as, uh, as it turned out, they needed a two-issue fill-in on Thunderbolts at the time. Mm. So I, I got offered that. And then I just kind of kept getting offered stuff afterwards. Uh, thankfully, it hasn't, it hasn't uh, ended so far. But as regards to the um, stuff I was reading as a kid, again, not to sound like a poor, you know, fiddle-playing um, <laughs> uh, street urchin or anything, but there wasn't a whole lot of stuff. Uh, I didn't have access um, being in the west of Ireland. There was a lot of... Uh, I could read asterisks in the local library. That mm. was really good. And there was some, like, DuckTales, things <laughs> like that. Uh, you know, a lot of, like, news, news, news agent reprints. Um, but around the time the X-Men and Spider-Man cartoon were on TV, Panini started doing... They still do them now, but the first two they ever did was a Spider-Man book where they they print three American mm. Spider-Man issues in one volume. And it was about the cost of, like, an American comic. Mm. Um, and that was a great way to kind of start reading and then I managed to track track down some American comics which were like it was like the end of the clone saga in Spider-Man which is just insane whereas I was reading the beginning of it through the UK reprints um, and the same with X-Men I was I kind of I was reading mm-hmm. two different times and just trying to slowly connect both but uh, but I mean thankfully those re- those news agents reprints were there otherwise I wouldn't I mean maybe twice a year my mum would bring me to Dublin I could mm-hmm. go to Forbidden Planet mm-hmm. but I mean that's you know that was like a special occasion um and i think not too long after that preacher started being published as graphic novels so they're easier to get in bookshops yeah i think it's weird it's it's always what's accessible to you i know it's it's different now everywhere the internet you can kind of read anything but mm. like at the time it's just whatever was there it was mm. just it was just like it, it may not be the best crack in the world but it's <laughs> but it's uh, pretty good you know yeah. and it's all you have um but uh sorry yeah well, and I'm just curious, you know, everyone's kind of style is uh, somewhat influenced by what they've read or if they're influenced by fine art or movies or whatever. You know, we might have had a very different style from you if it had been a different selection of comics you'd been exposed to. Or were there other kind of things that helped form your style as you were developing? Um, I mean, well, I, I grew up on the same, you know, superhero stuff as everybody else. So Jim Lee, uh, Andy Kubert, um, Mark Bagley. Uh, John Romita Jr., like all the kind of main guys at the time. Uh, I loved all that stuff. I think it was um, it was Mazzuchelli's Batman Year One that just, mm. I think, whatever it did, it just rebooted me for everything else I'd ever mm. like. 
I still have a lot of affection for all those 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 artists and those books. Don't get me wrong. And I I I think I'd like to think that I'm like an interesting artist, but I know underneath it all is just like a lot of superhero stuff. You know, mm-hmm. like those poses and the visual language of it is all it's, it's all part of the, my my DNA. I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I definitely opened up to different stuff. Um, I went to art college as well in 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 Ireland, which kind of broke me out of like just looking at comics. Mm. So I was looking at like paintings and print, stuff that I just didn't have access to. Um, and I remember, and when I finished college, I started drawing comics again, and I was basically like a terrible, terrible Brian Hitch ripoff. <laughs> um, and I realized I started like I regressed to what I was drawing when I was seventeen, mm. whereas when I was twenty two. It took me a while to kind of take all the experimentation I did in in art college mm. and start to bring it into the comics work. So I was, you know, I was a very, I was drawing a very specific way, mm. which clearly, you know, is just a bad version of somebody else who's very good. Yeah. Um, and it took me a while to be able to kind of like figure out what. Like people talk about style a lot, and I think it's very, um, I think it's a very surface level conversation because mm. it all, I think it comes more from you than you realize, and you. Like I wish I drew like J.P. Leon. Like uh, I love his work and Goran Parlov. They're all amazing, but I'm just not them. Mm. And you can you can suck in all you want of their stuff, but like you can't. It's it's um, you know, it's like a, a graft won't necessarily hold. You know, maybe you just need someone to really heavily ink your work to free you from the, the line. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, I'd have a very hard time handing my stuff over to somebody else, admittedly, but um. But also, I'm not that. I'm also not that uh, precious about my lines either. Like I, I'll splatter all kinds of crap on the pages. Is one thing the college taught me was uh, to embrace happy accidents. Actually, mm. I think that's. I noticed I was very controlled. You know, mm. like feathering. I would do feathering by like getting a ruler and a line. You're like, yeah, that's yeah. not. But that, that's be. what I was getting at. I mean, yeah. people know you for your delicate line, and so if you wanted to be one of those artists who gotcha. you know was far more kind of like you know splotchy to use a technical term you know you'd need someone almost to like ink the hell out of your work before you could free yourself it's, your it's weird I, I consider myself quite messy but like okay. but I, I i i know that's in my head because like sometimes people look at my my original pages and they go oh wow they're really clean i'm like are they <laughs> to my head they're really really messy but i i was talking to uh, marcos martin a while ago and uh he described my stuff as a mix of uh, john ramita jr and kev o'neill okay which, but I mean, like I love, I love Kevin O'Neill's stuff. Mm. But he, I wouldn't say he would be a direct influence. I say Ramita more so because I read all that stuff as a kid. But it's, it was so interesting to, to listen to somebody whose opinion I really, really respect. Like have a take on, because you can't really have a real, you can't have an unbiased view of your own work. It's just, mm. just impossible. Mm. Um, uh, so that was really, really interesting. Uh, um, I would be interesting to ask more people, like, well, how would you describe my stuff? Because I think, yeah, I've no idea. Mm. I was talking to Staz earlier about drawing licensed comics, and obviously mm. it's one thing doing superheroes where you kind of have to fit in with the ongoing narrative and continuity. But when you were working on comics like 28 Days Later and James Bond, where it's a different kind of franchise, did that produce different challenges to the superhero work? Um, honestly, the superhero stuff's been really... I remember when I started drawing for Marvel, people were saying, like, oh, is it tough to draw in that style? And I was like, just draw the way I want to draw. There's no editorial mandate telling you uh, how I you know how to do things. But stuff like franchises like Twenty Days Later and things like that, it, I guess it really depends on who the licensor is. Mm. With Marvel, 
Marvel are the licensor of their own characters, so they're they're actually a bit more liberal with it. Um, and sometimes I actually don't mind a little bit as regards story and things like that. Um, I don't mind a little bit of restraint because I think it forces you to, it stops you from become becoming too complacent. Um, I've noticed even in 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 creator own work that I'm doing, I try and make rules for myself mm. because when you have total freedom, it can actually be a little bit crippling. Mm. Um, so I try and like create fake restrictions in mm. order to force myself to come up with more creative solutions, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think I, I, I sound insane, don't no, I? No, no. Well, there's that a movie that came out about 10 years ago called The Four Obstructions, I think it's called, where mm-hmm. um, Lars von Trier got hold of his old film tutor and forced him to remake the same short film four times and each time made it more difficult. Well, you can remake it, but each shot can only last half a second. You can remake it, but you have to shoot it in a back street in Mumbai. You know, <laughs> okay. like, those are some very specific restrictions. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but but I mean, I would have to say, I mean, I think it's. Uh, I mean, I wasn't drawing the Bond story; that was P.J. Holden. Mm. Um, but uh, with uh, Twenty Days Later, I think once we kind of got the likeness of the Selena character figured out, all the other characters were were original to the story, so it was fine. Um, uh, hasn't been too bad as, as regards to stuff but yeah if there are restrictions you, you i try try work around them or work with them rather than trying to like fight them head on i find nice as you were talking about how when you started out uh you were just having a fill-in issue here and a fill-in issue there yeah and then obviously you're getting longer runs mm-hmm. um with the longer runs because i mean i don't know they're not probably not going to say to you we want you for the next two years or something but presumably there comes a point where you get the feeling that oh, I'm going to be on this for a while. Does that make it more interesting because you know you can actually make more of your stamp on a, on a character rather than just fitting in between other people's stories? Um, I never really thought about it in those terms. Um, I know when, uh, when I was doing uh, Detective, for example, it was... Um, at first, it wasn't like six months. It, at first, it was... Uh, I think it was three months, and then I did those three months... Well, I did a couple of months and said, all right, well, uh, we want you to do another three months. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but it's still at that point because I was, I, I knew it was uh, still in effect, even though it was, um, you know, quite a long filling. I knew in effect it was still a filling and I was, I was sort of, you know, keeping house for the guy that was going to come back because he was doing a huge Joker graphic novel or something. So, you know, you can't start messing about with it. Um, but when I was working on Robin, um, I mean, they told me straight away. I went to see them. Um, we'd just gone over there, me and my wife. Um, we'd gone over there to New York to just to... Uh, I think I'd just finished the run on Detective. And they said, um, you know, we want to offer you the, the Robin gig. Yeah. And, uh, and I said, what, like? And I said, well, full-time, that's it. You know, this you'll be doing this for basically as long as you want to do it. In wow. Effect. Okay. Um, and I said, okay. Uh, so... Uh, and the thing was, I was following on from a guy who was extremely popular. So it was almost a case of, do I try and copy what he does because I know he's so popular, or do I just go completely a different way? And I just, I chose just to go a completely different way because I knew I couldn't do, uh, my brain didn't work the way his mm. brain worked, you know. Yeah. Um, so there was a point of trying to pretend 
to be that kind of an artist. He was much more cartoony than I was at that point. Well, um, that's kind of what I was getting at, that when you do the fill-in, maybe you have to kind of adopt the house style more. But when it's a longer run, you can have your own direction. Yeah, I mean, that, that's it. I mean, it's um, when, when you know you've got your feet under the table almost, it's... It's um, it does free you up because um, you, you're not constantly worried about oh, you know this might be the last job I ever do because mm. uh, there's that you know imposter syndrome where you sure. think somebody's going to discover that I can't actually draw. Um, <laughs> so, um, but once when they've said to you, look, you know this is your gig now. Um, you know we like what you do, and as long as you're happy to keep doing it, we're just going to keep hiring you every single month. Mm. Um, you think, well, right, you know it, it's it gives you that. Um, that, that freedom to they like what I do they've told me they like what I do even mm. though I might still have my doubts about it they yeah. you know the, the people that are sending the paychecks over every month are happy with it mm. so it gives me the chance to to be myself mm. and if myself thinks that I should draw differently this month yeah um, that's what I'm that's where I'm gonna go with you know what I mean mm. and um, and to be fair I, in three years and I don't think I ever there was never a, a point where they said, yeah, we're not so sure about this. It, it was, it was, you know, it was my decision to leave at the end. Um, I, I'd done it for three years and uh, there's only so many ways you can draw a 13-year-old boy in green tights. Um, <laughs> so it's just, you know, time for a change. But at the same time, because you had that long run, was that kind of the point in your career where you felt... I'm developing a style that is recognisably me. Um, I don't know if I ever really felt that. I was, I was just drawing what I, the way I draw. I mean, mm. I don't think consciously thinking, oh, I, you know, I'm being me. But I think within the industry, mm. I had people knew what Sales Johnson did. So mm. when I decided to quit, uh, I want to quit Robin. They said straight away. They said we want you to do Catwoman. Right. So, because they knew what I did, mm. do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, whereas, um, I don't think I formulated a, an idea of what I was about. But mm. the, the editors, the people in the position to hire people, mm. um, and when you know other editors came calling, they'd seen what I'd done and they they had an idea of what they were going to get back at the end of the month. Yeah. Um, do you know what I mean? Mm. Looking at for example, the uh, the drawing of Conan that you did earlier, it seems that um, the human form, the way that muscles work, the way that you know the, the structure of the body appears on the page, mm. is something that's particularly indicative of your style in a way. Did you ever um, undertake uh, anatomy classes, or was it just something that came naturally, kind of no, doing did, life drawing? It, it didn't come naturally. I mean, I've always done sort of drawn uh, people and stuff. I remember when I was, I went, to, I did a. Um, uh, foundation art courses like at, at Sixth Form College and mm. um, we did a few sort of um, we, we couldn't do live drawing because um, you had to have it all had to be blocked off to have like new models and stuff but we used to do what we call costume life where people yeah. you know and I, and I always do these drawings and um, the, the, the teachers were, the, the tutors were like Christ how, 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 do you, how did you do that I, was like, I don't mm. know and then they one day I brought in my sketchbooks which were full of drawings of you know, I don't know, Judge Dredd or, or yeah. whatever. And they're like, ah, now we know why you can do that because you draw people every day. I said, well, yeah, that's what I do. Mm. Uh, but it wasn't until I was, uh, it was after that, and I, and I met a guy called 
who sadly died now, a guy called John Watkiss. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with the name. Um, and he just started working for 2000 AD, although he, in the end, he, he, he passed up um, on the gig. And and he said, look, you know, he, he I'd showed him some of my stuff, and he said, oh, it's just really nice, but you've just got to learn anatomy. And he was a, he was huge on anatomy, and he showed me mm. some of his work, and it was astonishing. Mm. Um, but, I mean, he was to the point of being crazy about anatomy, you know, yeah. uh, studying um, uh, dissections and huh. not, not, not just, you know, wow. the, you know, artist, uh, anatomy for the artist. He went yeah. to the nth degree. Mm. Um, but that's what sort of um, uh, started me on it. And um, so, yeah, it was definitely a conscious decision to learn how to do that. Mm. Um, because as soon as, like, you know, when you talk to somebody that knows how to do that, and then you realise, oh, that's why John Buscema can draw mm. Conan looking like that because he's he's studied that for years. Yeah. And then you, ah, oh, right, okay. Fortunately, I, you know, I was sort of fairly young when I when I received that um, mm. uh, sort of advice, and it mm. gave me a chance to um, sort of refine those, you know, what meagre skills I have. Yeah. Um, whereas you know, some people they never really figure that out until yeah. much later and I think it's easy to learn those skills when you are you know six months at 17 is like it's going to take you three years at 25 sure do you know what I mean yeah yeah definitely mm. um, you've become kind of a regular collaborator with Warren Ellis and on the, uh, the strip on the comic um, Injection that's a real kind of like globe trotting adventure has uh, British landscape, has Paris, it has Brooklyn, mm-hmm. has interiors inspired by Doctor Who and so on. How does that collaboration work? Do you, does Warren set you all those challenges or do you occasionally say, you know, I'd really love to draw Paris? <laughs> no. uh, it's just like, I get the script, I'm like, what? Um, I think the only thing I asked for was there to be an Irish character because I, to do, I always wanted, I wanted to do something creator-owned and if I did, I just wanted to be some thing Irish in there mm. that was it but um, but then like Warren wrote in like this black character as an Irish person I was like, I remember thinking that's strange because like my generation yeah. there just hasn't been as much um, immigration so mm. you know that's I was impressed that Warren is still like so forward thinking mm. like he's more like he's more wise to what's going on in my country than I am <laughs> you know <laughs> but um, that was the only thing it's uh, Warren doesn't tell me anything um, I I don't know how the book ends. I've no idea. I've no idea what's coming next. Um, but this, uh, more uh, from aside from the script, mm. I get the script, and that's when I figure out what the hell I'm going to do. Um, but when we started out, we had been do, we'd done Moon Knight, and um, we were talking about doing something creator owned. And uh, he asked me to give him a, what he called a shopping list, which was just a, a list of all the things that I'm reading or that I like or that I like to draw. Mm. So he kind of did that up front at the beginning um, and I sent I sent him pages of mine that I was really proud of I, I told him like shows I was watching you know just to, I think he just wanted to get a sense of, of things that I liked outside of having worked on Moon Knight and um, I think Deadwood was one of those things mm. and he said like you know you had me a Deadwood so I'm like great so I think whatever comes with Injection I know that he's writing it for me okay. not, it's not something that said like hey I've got this idea do you want to draw it it was always, uh, you know, I feel like it's designed specifically for me to draw. Mm. Um, but the challenge is I just never know what it's going to be and I have to kind of figure it out. But that keeps me on my toes too, you know. Like I said, uh, 
you don't want to get complacent um especially when you're drawing all day every day you can fall into habits bad habits mm. um so you know if there's something i'm trying to think was the last mad thing you had me draw there was that tree monster thing that was mm. through a mirror in volume one and then there was all the sex stuff in volume two and <laughs> just you know stuff that i'm not used to drawing but like i i enjoy the challenge at the same time you know well, I, I felt that you were readdressing the balance. That there's so much female nudity in comics. It's nice that you did a fair amount of male nudity. That's true. There's been a, there's been a willy in every volume. I've noticed. Um, yeah, right. Willy, willy. No. Um, you should say that on the front. A willy in every volume. Yeah, and not a willy either. Well, it was not as, there was the, the climax of um, um, at the uh, um, uh, near the end of volume one. There's this character comes out naked. In the script, I remember writing Warren going, is this like Marvel naked where you just shadow it? Mm. Which is fine. I don't mind. Like, uh, Or do we actually see the whole thing? And it's like, no, the whole thing. So, all right. I hadn't drawn that before. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I noticed it's just happened. So whatever way in the story, I don't know if it's by design or not, but there was like Rasputin's penis in one, <laughs> in volume two. And what's in volume? Yeah, like Vivek has sex with everything in volume <laughs> uh, two. I think volume three is one where the things in a jar and um, that's fine i'd like i'm i'm on board I actually hope that the the last two volumes also have willies it'll be basically uh, the <laughs> we, we live in hope yeah we live in hope yeah <laughs> there's not much i think i ask for in life but uh, that, that's that's one thing i hope for i was about to ask about photo reference but not about the willies but specifically when you are asked to draw say you know the carving of a horse in a landscape the way that brooklyn bridge looks the way the eiffel tower looks against yeah. the landscape I guess that's much easier, you know, in this day and age uh, with the internet that you can Google these things. But do you find yourself kind of going down rabbit holes, spending hours finding just the right angle? Uh, yeah, it depends. Like when I when I, I I spend a lot of time on layouts, and that's where I'll, I'll research all of my locations and photo reference. Um, sometimes you find the thing that's perfect. You're like, that's exactly what I had in mind. Sometimes you just can't. You're looking and you're looking and you're looking and you're looking. Um, what's more with, with Warren, the problem is sometimes the weird, weird, messed up stuff that you have to draw, like you have to look it up. So, like, what in the first issue, there's a body that's been burnt, that's been burned to death. You're like, okay, wow. gotta look that up. And Moon Knight, there was rats. Ugh, ugh, that was awful. That was probably the worst thing having to look <laughs> up rat reference. Just, just, that was your room 101. Yeah, I just uh, that was that was rough, but um, uh, um, stuff like that. But also, Warren, he's very like he, there was a lot of specific um, um, like type of guns and and uh, weapons and stuff. But like he he just seems to know what everything is. So he's really good for like like giving you the reference that you need in those cases for sure. Um, but like even at that, trying to like there was one weapon that was like it was um, it is a gun. But it's not. It doesn't use. Um, it's technically an air gun, but it's mm-hmm. a lethal weapon. And it's one thing to like read a diagram about it, but then trying to figure out how it works. Like I know way more about guns now, because well, just be, like because I think there was an issue I drew when I, I didn't know what they were. To me, they're toys because yeah. like you know we don't have them over over here. Um, but you know, there's a lot of YouTube videos where you see people like actually you see how it's work. You put it together like oh well, it's a machine, and mm. if I was going to draw a machine, I should kind of understand how it works. Mm. So it's. It's good in that regard, but you can definitely fall down rabbit holes. Like yeah. I know more about like different types of guns I ever thought that I would, but um, but it's also kind of the cool thing about drawing comics is you you always you're always learning something too, I think. Nice. I was talking to um, 
Declan earlier about the troubles uh, you might have drawing Frankenstein because there have been so many previous you know, cinematic versions that mm-hmm. colour people's idea of what the character should look like. You're doing Dracula. How well, have you... I did. Okay, so you've recently done Dracula. How did you come up with uh, a version of the character that you felt was doing something new? Well, my um, when I did that book, um, my approach was taken from the point of view of none of the films existed. Okay. I was, it's, it's as if I was living in 1897, like the me that is now living okay. in 1897. <laughs> this book's just come out. Mm. And reading that book, how do I imagine it looks? Mm. So my version, the way I drew Dracula was, as much as I could, completely devoid of any influence of any of the films, just what it said on the page. Mm. Uh, same with all the situations. I mean, of course, you're going to get some... You can't completely write out. Um, yeah. But I didn't... I, I made a point of not looking at anything... Um, you know, like the, the Francis Ford Coppola thing. Mm. Um, not, because, I mean, it, it, that was still the one that was in most recent memory for a lot of people. Mm. And uh, Mike Bignola had done a version of that, and I definitely didn't want to be compared to Mike Bignola. Yeah. So, um, because, I, you know, you can't live up to something like that. So mm. I wanted to do something that was... Um, the, the only version of Dracula that... I looked at, and really, I only looked at it was just to get some Victorian reference. The BBC did an adaptation. Oh yeah, okay. Um, Louis Jordan. No, no, not that. Oh, that one. Okay. I love that one, but no, not that one. It was a fairly recent one. It was oh, I can't remember who, who mm. actually plays Dracula. It's not, it's not really an adaptation of of the book. It's it's called Dracula, and Dracula comes to the UK, but it's okay. not at all mm. the book. Um, but I really, I just looked at that for some of the the costumes and stuff because mm. when I first started drawing it. Um, I know the, the one I turned in a few pages and the editor said, well, it doesn't look Victorian enough. We wanted to look, you know, completely authentic. Yeah. So I made a point of trying to, you know, really research that. And, the, and the, the best way of getting all that kind of reference, just to see the way that, you know, it's all right looking at a photograph, but to, to figure out how somebody moves in a Victorian suit is to, mm. you know, look at it on film. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, uh, something like you know Dracula or some, uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes. I had some DVDs of Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. um, for like you know the, the way it, it, an interior of a Victorian house is lit. Mm. Um, yeah, did did you turn off the Wi-Fi and the central heating and the electric light when uh, you were doing it? Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> come on, I'm, I'm not, but, for, but, yeah. for authenticity. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, I. Um, so, so things like that, I, uh, I I made a point of trying to make sure that my that the version of Dracula that I did had, had got nothing in common with anything that mm. might have been seen on screen. Um, just just to um, to avoid any comparisons, just so that yeah. people, oh yeah, you, you know, it was obviously not Christopher Lee, it was obviously mm. not Bela Lugosi, um, and. Then you immediately people don't have to do those comparisons. Mm. You know what I mean? They can just see it for yeah. what it is. It exists in of itself. Do you know mm. what I mean? Yeah. And, and as well, because it was specifically designed to be an adaption of the book, mm. it was never meant to be anything other than the book on on a comic strip page. So to try and divert from that just seemed to be missing the point anyway. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Nice. So we've got about seven minutes left. Does anyone have any questions either for Declan or Stairs? Um, I wanted to ask you, Declan, have you ever considered working for 2008? Uh, never been asked. So, <laughs> screw them. 
no, I, um, I weirdly didn't really grow up with 2000 Idea. I was saying with the stuff that was on newsstands, I was just too lame. Uh, like, I really big into sci-fi and, and uh, you know, satirical uh, work and stuff like that. But when I was a kid, it was just like, ugh, it looks scary. Um, so I was just way too lame to get into it. So I didn't grow up culturally with, I say, a lot of the guys, even in, our, in Ireland, like at my age, would have grown up with it. So, like you say, PJ Holden, uh, um, like a massive 2018 guy. Like, I, I know what Rogue Trooper is. But I don't really know who he is. And I'm aware of Dread, like... I like the idea of drawing a dread story or something, but um, like, especially now if I'm going to draw something, I'd like it to be like a collection of something, or like I'm not too bothered about doing short stories, um, but uh, I'm wouldn't be against it. Like I just uh, I I don't have a mad desire. It's it's not one of the characters I grew up really really wanting to do, but like I could definitely like enjoy drawing it. I think. I mean, Stas, thinking of 2000 AD, there seems to be uh, an interesting development in the comic these days that previously people would start out on 2000 AD and then go to America. Mm. But now, actually, a lot of people are making their names in America and coming back to 2000 AD, which is something that you did. I did, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I, conversely to Declan, I was a huge 2000 AD fan. And it was, it was 2000 AD that um, switched me on to the idea of it being a career. Because as I say, I mean, I, I met uh, John Watkins because he'd started working for 2000 Somebody said, oh, I've met this guy who works for 2000 AD. Mm. And I was like a huge... Um, you know, dread fan at that point. And I met him with the saying, how do you get work for 2000 AD? Obviously I was, wasn't ready for that, but, um, so, but then because I started working, um, immediately like for Marvel UK and then for Marvel American DC. And I kind of bypassed that. And it wasn't until, uh, I guess, um, around 2000 or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. I click around 2000 that I, um, I thought, well, I could, I could do this, you know, I could go back. And, and I just sent, literally sent some samples to, uh, it was Andy Diggle that was editor mm. at that point. And um, apparently he, he opened the envelope and, and uh, I think Fraser Irving was in there, the office at the time, apparently he opened my envelope and said, oh shit, we better give this guy some work. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I mean, I just, and, but then I sort of did bits and pieces for them and then sort of went back to work for Marvel or whatever, but, I've been working for them pretty much. They're, they are my bread and butter for the last uh, two or three years, and mm. I'm, I'm happy to do Dread because it's. Um, I mean, it's not the best paid gig in the world, but there's no interference. You mm. know, they get a script, and there's, there's never can you do it like this. It's just, just you take your time, you do it in, you know, as fast or as slow as you want. Mm. Um, we're not going to tell you how to do it. Um, whatever, you, there's no submitting pencils. You know, it's just. Yeah, we know what we're going to get back from you. You just do your thing, and it and that freedom to just just do what I want to do. It's mm. um, it's it's worth you know an extra fifty quid a page. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And does it give you any extra pleasure? Does it give you any extra pleasure seeing your work reproduced on an A4 page as opposed to an American comic book size page? Um, or is it just the job? You know. Uh, yeah, it kind of is just a job now, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, I'd never really sort of thought about mm. that too much. I mean, I suppose you, the, the artwork looks nicer at a slightly larger size, but um, um, I'd never really thought about it, to be honest with you. Okay. Um, I mean, and I suppose that's something as well for you, Declan, that most of your work has been uh, reproduced at American comic book size, but I guess now with Image doing kind of like nice, chunky hardcovers uh, at a larger page, 
Is that something that's at all of interest to you, or do you just like the fact that your art is being reproduced? I love it. <laughs> the bigger the better. I love it. <laughs> um, we did the thing with the first issue of Injection where we printed it like art signs. Yes. Um, it's not it's not as good as say the um, as all those um, artist editions that like IUW do because they are actually from raw scans. Yeah. One we did, day. Sorry. One day. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, I love all that stuff. Um, um, I, I do, yeah, did, did, we just did a hardcover for Injection and it is a little bit bigger. Mm. And I mean, I actually didn't, hadn't really considered it, but once seeing it a little bit bigger is nice. But it's also, there are some people who do hardcovers are really big. And I, I think I bought the Deadly Class one. I'm like, oh, this is savage. Ooh. And you're just like, I can't read this thing. It's too big. So it's, it's nice to have it at a size where you can actually read it and it'd be a nice art object. Um, but uh, as regards to the, I mean, yeah, everything I do is pretty much is published in America, um, and I know I think that the weird thing with with um, say something like two thousand ideas, I just think the the books that are kind of if it's not Marvel DC, people have been moving to create their own more, which is mm. great. But uh, I, I just think anthologies are hard. I love anthologies, but they're a bit of a harder sell these days too. I think. Um, but uh, I, sorry, I don't know where I was going with that. I'm just <laughs> thinking out loud. Um. We're seeing the pair of you draw today on a two-size paper. What's normally the relationship between the size you draw and the way it's reproduced? I mean, I never work this big, really. Um, <laughs> well, even at that, if I would do like a double-page spread, it would be like this. But I'd have workshopped the image so much smaller. Mm. Um, you see some artists who work big, yeah. and then it, it publishes like an actual print size, and the head's too big, or the hand's really weird. It's because it's hard, very hard to... like see the image yeah. when you're up yeah. close to it like this so it's a little it's a little weird to just draw right on a page of this size um, if I was doing it onto actual artboard I would, have, I would have gone and done layouts and figured it out and then light boxed it so all the proportions are right and things like that so it's a little weird it's a little comfortable but but you know it's good cool well I'm very much like to thank Saz and Declan for uh, coming along talking about their work in live drawing cool For more info about Declan Shalvey's work, please go to his Tumblr page, dshalv.tumblr.com. That's d-s-h-a-l-v dot t-u-m-b-l-r dot com. For more info about Staz Johnson's work, please go to his blog, stazjohnson.blogspot.com. That's s-t-a-z-j-o-h-n-s-o-n dot blogspot.com. The live drawing session with Declan Shalvey and Staz Johnson was recorded at the Lakes International Comic Art Festival in 2019. Like many events, it didn't take place last year in real life, only as an online festival, but this year is returning to Kendall for another three-day festival celebrating the best of comic books from around the world. Artists at this year's LICAF include Greg Rucker, Michael Lark, Yomi Ayeni, Sarah Begum, Sean Phillips, and Clarice Tudor, alongside various other creators from every part of the globe. In the meantime, the Lakes Festival is funding a comics literacy research project at a community school near Manchester in partnership with Comic Art Europe and the Phoenix Comic. This research into how children understand, read, and create comics is part of this year's Manchester City of Literature 
And you can find more info about this, as well as the festival itself, by going to comicartfestival.com. In the second half of today's show, I'm talking to artist Zara Slattery about her graphic novel Coma, which depicts her experiences of extreme medical intervention as a journey through a fantastical dreamscape. Zara discusses the ins and outs of her illness and her treatment, both of which might be traumatic for anyone who's undergone anything similar. So if this doesn't sound like your cup of tea, perhaps we skip ahead to Zara talking about her process. My interview with Zara was recorded at Cartoon County in a pub in Hove before lockdown, so you'll have to forgive the background noise. So I've come across your work in various publications over a number of years. I think the first one that I read was your collaboration with Miff, actually, uh, Two Birds, mm. uh, two-person anthology, which is quite unusual <laughs> in and of itself. But you haven't done any kind of large, long graphic novel projects up until the present day. Obviously, you know, what happened, which you're going to be talking about, hopefully happy to talk about a certain extent tonight, are events that prompted you to make a graphic novel about what happened in mm. your life. But do you think you would have reached a point anyway where you'd want to tackle a longer book? Yes. So I had started semi-long. So the first thing I, I drew was about nine years ago. It was a sort of, it was a long-form graphic novel and I thumbnailed about 120 pages. Wow. And, um, and it was my first comic and, um, and it wasn't very good. But it was a really good exercise in just playing with the art form. So I, I'm an illustrator and I'd only ever drawn a single image hmm. uh, to express a point. And then I thought, actually, I really like telling stories. So I'm just going to play with this art form. And um, yeah, so that was just a kind of like an exercise and seeing where I could go. And then, yeah, it wasn't very good. So I thought, well, maybe I just need to start with something smaller, something shorter. And so I did a couple of um, four-page comics, and I was just exploring little ideas. And then I've got some stories that I will at some point draw as, you know, bigger, bigger, longer-form comics. I haven't got anything that's going to be as big as this. <laughs> but also, I, I slightly lose interest along the way, so I get easily distracted. So I might start something and I go, oh, what's that? And it's maybe because I haven't quite resolved an idea, I haven't kind of developed it further enough so I, I just I park things and I will come back to them so yes mm. I would have done okay I might not park things quite so long <laughs> if it wasn't for this so your background is in illustration mm -hmm. and you have um illustrated children's books as well yes. are they in the traditional style of just uh, an image with a little bit of text rather than being more sequential yes all of them the okay same. yeah so when you started drawing comics um, nine years ago, was it because you had an urge to tell things in sequential art? Yeah. So I'd been, I went to a writing group and I sort of wanted to write something uh, slightly fantastical. And we'd sort of, we'd all, you know, do our pieces of writing and each month we'd like send them out to, our, to everybody else in the group and then everyone would come back each month and we'd get together and everyone would critique it. And then I just wanted to put more and more pictures in it. And I mm. was thinking more of like problem solving. How could I actually tell this story visually as opposed to words? Because words, I kind of I slightly get a little bit poetic. I get a little bit uncomfortable with it. I feel I'm slightly exposing myself a bit when I sort of tell stories in words. 
whereas I feel I can um, express myself more freely. I can put that that um, I can be poetic, but in my line, and I, mm. I'm much more comfortable with doing that. But it, it sort of took me a while to figure out that I could actually do. I was allowed to do that, and I don't know why I hadn't come to it sooner. So you know, I started like throwing the words out and then putting pictures in <laughs> and just seeing what would happen then. So nice. Yeah. Different creators have different ways of working, particularly if they're going to tackle a very long project. I guess for you, uh, you realised this was the way that I want to plan the whole project in advance by doing thumbnails, just to get an idea of the shape of the book. And perhaps as well, since you're doing different voices and those different voices are being rendered in different styles, to see how those sections work with each other. Yeah, and I I need to, because I I think with Dan's, it's his narration. And so I'm sort of like, I'm, I'm reinterpreting that in, in um, picture form. So the words are leading, you know, how I, what I'm drawing. And there will be a dialogue in there. And I, I, I'm going to, like, include people that he mentions. So we could just kind of, like, have a little bit of variation. Apart from, got up this morning and, you know, had breakfast, went to the hospital. It was, it's a little bit more than that. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so we can have other people where they expand on on his experience you know where they go for coffee well what did they talk about when they mm. go for coffee so he says that and then people say well I was there and I can tell you that we did this and did that so um, I'd like to weave a little bit of that into um, the story so you've got back in touch with everyone to ask them to yeah, submit extra they, bits of the well, story <laughs> yeah I haven't quite asked all of them some people have volunteered and some people have said hmm I was there. I'm like, are you? Okay, you weren't mentioned. Yes, but I was there. I'm like, okay. And, so, and I think, and actually, that's they're quite nice scenes. And then with mine, I'm actually writing it as I draw draw it. Okay. So I have a start point, um, a, a scene, and an end point, and then I just kind of feel my way through it. Sometimes I end up in a place where I'm quite surprised, and it's so far it's like I'm pleasantly surprised <laughs> where I've ended up. But there is a rhythm to it. And mm. I kind of like, I always, so I teach drawing and I always talk about having a beat or a rhythm to how you draw. Mm. And it seems that actually that, that rhythm is sort of like, that beat is coming coming through the story mm. so far. Okay. So good. The events that you depict uh, in the comic, in the graphic novel, took place six years ago. Mm-hmm. Obviously at the time and for some time after, it must have been a pretty traumatic thing mm. to have to deal with. When did you get to a point where you thought this is a period of life of my life that I would like to turn into a graphic narrative and a point where you feel enough time has passed that even working on it isn't traumatic? Yeah. So I guess my my first sort of like trying to tell the story, which was probably about three years afterwards. Okay. I did an illustration, like an illustration comic, simply like one page called Evolution, and it just simply documents my identity as somebody moving through life you know as a baby crawling to a toddler mm. running and how how I am the same person despite the fact that I move differently and, and I felt that that point if I write or draw or you know I don't need to do anything else that actually would be enough mm. you know because I felt um clawing back from something as traumatic as as that I um your identity, everything you kind of like, how you recognise yourself, mm. how you live your life, how mm. other people treat you. It's like, it's um, mind-blowing. It just kind of like never, I was never prepared for the sort of like 
going forward from mm. from the initial illness. So it was traumatic for a long time. Mm. Um, added to that, I was on sort of med- quite powerful medication um, that had a massive effect on how I could like process and think. Mm. But I knew early on that I wanted to draw about it. Mm. because I thought this is like a bitch of an experience and I'm going to grab her and do something with her and I want to, um, I don't want it to define me, I want to define it Mm. and also I I had to get to a point where um, I could feel confident to tell it artistically and visually and it was, for me as an artist, had to come to the fore as opposed to me as the victim. Mm. And I started um, about three years afterwards. I started kind of like playing with ideas, and I thought, "I'm ready to do this now. I can. I want to find visual solutions for for pain, for trauma, for shock." Um, and and then I, I I did this sort of like an introduction, <clears throat> and I presented it at Graphic Medicine, mm. um, and it seemed to kind of like that. I had, that was a perfect avenue. So mm. it was a bit of an impetus to kind of start to, to figure out how to tell this story. From the horse's mouth, as it were. Mm. Um, so I did an introduction and started playing around with the ideas, and then I actually figured I couldn't go any further. I was too angry, huh. so I got you know the fact that there was missed opportunities um, to diagnose. I had textbook um, symptoms, and they were completely missed. And I, I got to that point, and there was nothing but rage could come, mm. and that's not a place where I could start to tell I wanted to be objective I wanted to, to just purely be an artist mm. finding finding ways through so I shelved that like I shelved a lot of things um, and I just had, wanted to play and I thought that's what I have to do now I have to, to, to find my way back in I have to kind of like just have diversion so I did silly comics um, stuff that would make me feel good because I knew early on that to heal, to recover from trauma, mm. um, you cannot focus on the trauma. You can't focus on the pain. The only way forward is to um, find things that make you happy, find things that that mm. are positive and hopeful and silly. Mm. Um, and so I did that, and that allowed me just to shake it off and loosen up a little bit. And I did this um, comic called um, little four-page comic uh, called "Don't Pick the Flowers." I'm not quite sure what order I did things in, but this, I thought if I had to go into this kind of like my head and mm. unravel these experiences, then I'm going to go into somebody else's first because I thought, thought I don't know how to visualise my mm. my world because I knew it was a lot of corridors, um, so I didn't quite have it yet. Um, so I already sometime before did a, a little comic um, about Klimt Mm. And um, and I just thought, gosh, it's I love shapes, and that allows me to kind of like be quite fluid, and and um, I didn't want to do kind of like lots of hard edges. Um, so I thought, well, why not go into a Klimt painting and mm. a little bit sort of a um, little bit symbiotic, and a bit bit of a parasite as well. Mm. So um, so I'm going into his creativity and want to see, well, what does that feel like, you know? What if I do? I'm going to do a little bit of arc critique as well. Mm. I'm going to I'm going to feel something. I'm going to pick something. I'm going to feel like excited and elated by actually being in this beautiful space. Mm. And yet I'm not always so comfortable with it. 
So there's things there that don't make me feel comfortable about his depictions of women. Mm. So um, I wanted to just to look at that and just play really. And then I got to the end and I thought, oh, I need to get out of here. And it was literally <laughs> like the last page going right, clambering out. And it's it's quite interesting, actually, because the point I'm at now with, with thumbnail and coma, mm. I'm really close to the end of kind okay. of like pulling myself out. And it's a really harrowing bit I'm in at the moment. And I don't want to kind of like labour over those harrowing bits, but um, but I'm definitely at the point, like I'm on the last page going, it's time to get out. Nice. Which does feel quite nice. What a natural, natural place to be. So, yeah. I mean, Klimt does uh, paintings of people that are still recognisably people, but obviously the flattening of the textures and the kind of exaggerated textures are what draw people to his work. But was it that you were looking at the world of fine art in a way to kind of find solutions to storytelling problems? Because you mentioned how when you were taking loads of uh, medication gave you a kind of -of out-of-body experience. And then by portraying these sort of surrealistic moments on the page in your graphic novel, were you looking to fine art in order to kind of give you solutions in rendering those kind of dreamlike experiences. Yeah, I think so. And so I wasn't quite sure how I was going to how am I going to make, you know, lots of corridors really interesting, <laughs> you know. How am I going to move across a space when I don't actually physically move anywhere for mm. like I don't move anywhere for three and a half months, you know. Um, and I certainly didn't move anywhere for those 15 days. But emotionally, um, mm. uh, I moved many places, kind of like in my mind, I went to many places. So, so yeah, it made sense to kind of like go in there. And also mm. because I'm a little bit lazy. <laughs> I like, I like kind of like, I like curves. I like mm. sort of like, um, I, but I wanted to play with perspective as well. I mm. wanted to kind of like slightly go, somebody's really persistent. It seems like a slightly easier place to go, mm. you know. So it was a bit, it was a bit lazy, really. It wasn't a defined space, mm. so it just was like a logical. It was a logical move, really. So, nice. okay. yeah. If you don't mind saying, what did actually happen? So I had um, nectarizing myositis. It's commonly called nectarizing fasciitis. Lots of people, more people, have the fasciitis than myositis um it's commonly known as the flesh-eating bug so occasionally people will read about that i know i remember reading about it like about five years before and going whoa somebody got that from like you know uh a cut you know gardening so um you can get it from either it's like damaged tissue so it could be simply a cut or it could be a bruise and i got it from a bruise i had um Five weeks prior to that, I had um, a sore throat that um, turned developed into strep throat. So I um, had a really bad... It's not the first time I'd had strep throat. Mm. Um, I think it was about the third time and took antibiotics for it. And so that calmed it down. But um, it didn't entirely get rid of it. So I was like carrying this sore throat around for a while. And I think I'd started to develop... I'm not quite sure of the order of things. I started to develop mm. sepsis. Right. And it all became a sort of like a cocktail of infection. So, um, so strep A um, developed into started poisoning my body, and then I had damaged tissue. So I think blood poisoning from that. So yeah, really bad bad luck, and mm. ended up with severe sepsis and toxic shock. 
so um which is like multiple organ failure wow and um the actual symptoms were extreme pain so i had a sore throat and on the morning that it all went really bad i'd taken the children to school and then i'd felt that sort of went back to bed and was like you know i was tweeting in bed going oh the pain in my neck has become a pain in my ass. ha 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 you know thinking i was being really funny and then within two hours because i actually could feel it like this kind of like pain moving down my neck and then pooling in my sort of like um I can't quite remember where it is. It's kind of like my upper thigh. Mm. And then within two hours, I was in agony, pain that was beyond anything I'd experienced before. And, um, yeah, went to the GP and she couldn't see anything. Sent me off with painkillers. Said, come back if it gets worse. And I was actually, I think that was the last time I properly walked properly. So Dan had come home and taken me to see the GP and... I knew at that point when we got home that it was it was this was not normal, mm. um, and then was just like desperate to get to hospital. But I didn't get to hospital about nine in the evening, and then I was kept in observation overnight. And I don't think I was given antibiotics, so um, and they didn't know what it was, and they said blood tests which were inconclusive, and I've seen notes and they're actually scans, but they were looking at the wrong part of my body. Mm. So the fact it was myositis, which is actually the muscle, it didn't start to show until kind of lunchtime the next day. And I think, and it's only from Dan's diaries do I know that I was able to say to him, look, this, look, this is the evidence of it. Like, this Mm. is, this is the point of my pain. But going into hospital, all they did was sedate me. So I kind of, it was really weird. My anger was around the fact that I actually had my, my voice taken away I couldn't actually say to mm. them when I got in there this is this is where my pain is this is where it started mm. and I think everything got lost in translation so mm. it was only at the point when I was um they were, I think they had was doing another scan following following this and then I just started to I think practically flat line when they were scanning so it was just everything was kind of like so touch and go mm. and um I think initially at the first, so I went into hospital Wednesday evening on the Thursday afternoon, they'd sort of like said to Dan, because Dan didn't think it was anything that serious, like initially, and um, and they, they take me into surgery and go, well, she might have a limp. So and it was just like, and then the next day I was like, I wasn't going to survive. So they, they said, well, we actually have to do it, but they didn't give me just got in there in time as we were rushing me into surgery mm. and um, and it was touch and go then for about a week so it was like this roller coaster of um, surgery and mm. then antibiotics mm. and um, so yeah it was it wasn't good I mean I really I'm hoping to raise awareness mm. about you know commonly nectarizing fasciitis there's a sort of a charity called the Lee Spark Foundation mm which um, I, I, I'm a member of on Facebook. And um, they've, they've done a lot to raise awareness and actually support survivors and, and families because we're always told it's really rare. But um, the number of people that keep joining this group and it's just growing and growing and nobody, mm. none of us think it's as rare as we're told it is. Mm. Um, so, um, so hopefully, um, you know, in, 
doctors don't know very much about it. And so every time I end up in hospital, it's kind of like, quickly, could you tell medical students about, you know, your symptoms? So it's like, um, um, yeah, hopefully it will raise awareness. And as I say, the Lee Spark Foundation has done amazing things and um, have worked with groups that are trying to do research into like who may be susceptible. So Mm. that, you know, I contributed some of my, um, gave them some of my DNA. So that could go as part of some research. And Mm. um, yeah. Mm. Well, I I was going to ask about that. You mentioned uh, misdiagnosis and you also mentioned graphic medicine. And when people think about comics and graphic novels that are included under the heading of graphic medicine, which is to say anything to do with illness, with medical practice, with being a doctor, with being a patient and so on, creators of graphic medicine titles obviously have a huge number of different motives for creating those comics, mm. whether it's to, as a sort of act of catharsis to get over it, whether it's to spread information about what happened. So it sounds like spreading information as well as being able to tell your story mm. are what's going into this project. Yeah. Also, it's you know, the, the visions I had were mm. astonishing. Right. You know, they're sort of like... It was... The smallest of silver linings. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were pretty terrifying. They were okay. really... I mean, I've never... Had you know, if I'd never experienced pain like that, I'd never experienced fear like that either. Mm. And it was genuine, you know, awful. I've never been a fan of horror movies, but to, to actually, it was like being in your own shine, shining movie. It was just yeah. awful, so yeah. scary. Um, but also, I'm kind of like I've got, I've got questions. I want, I wouldn't mind answers to them. Mm. You know, it's like so. The fir- my first vision was a medieval skeleton. At that point, it was still me. I was still logical. It mm. was in the early stages of sedation, and I don't. I hadn't had surgery at that point, and um, and all I was just thinking was like, that is the weirdest thing. This kind of like spiraling, kind of like medieval skeleton going across my my um, line of sight, mm. and um, and it looked like it's on a little white tile. So I was like, going, that looks like it's on a being cute tile not very expensive okay <laughs> so it's just my brain just kind of like going to these like weird places and then I think I must have passed out and sort of like then woke up in and my visions were real and I didn't question that was my reality and it was terrifying but you know before that when I saw the the medieval skeleton I had woken up within the darkness and I knew I was awake, but Mm. I wasn't awake. I knew it wasn't a dream. I knew I was, this was conscious thought, Mm. but I couldn't see anything and I couldn't, it's like sort of like being trapped in darkness. And so then this light coming across, across my eye and this, this image. And, um, and I always thought it's like my, I'd asked a question without being aware that I was asking a question Mm. and my body knew what the answer was hmm. so it was like going what do you need to see right now is this medieval skeleton <laughs> so it's just like oh okay but I didn't actually make the connection with my own mm. mortality it was just to kind of like that's interesting but I've got a friend who's um, a professor of psychology and um, so I was like quizzing him I don't you know he's a friend I don't want to always quiz him <laughs> every time I see him but I was going what is that what was my mind and body doing so, so here's like, dream number one I want you to interpret yes yeah here's dream number 17 yeah, enough, for well, god's sake Zara I know, I know. <laughs> but he's sort of like a slight little bit dismissive about it. he said yes but that sounds like mind body dualism I'm like whoa what's that so it's one is to raise awareness mm. two is kind of like you know I'm an artist I want to tell this story as artistically as I can it, do all this problem solving and 
everything. But I also want to ask questions, raise, mm. you know, raise questions about sort of like what we see, why we see it, how our body interprets mm. whatever's happening to it and um, how we make sense of that. Mm. But we don't make sense of it until, you know, mm. sometime later. But it's interesting as well that you can vividly remember these, I don't know what the word is, hallucinations, yeah. dreams, unconscious brain activity. Mm. I mean, I'm the sort of person who I just don't remember my dreams at all. And for a lot of people, unless they write them down immediately afterwards, they're gone. But these are things that stayed with you afterwards, yeah. that you could actually remember them as experiences. Yeah, they were so mm. intense. And mm. it's sort of like, it's like it fills your own, your whole head. It's like, um, it's your lived experience. And um, it was harrowing and haunting and... Mm. You know, it, it sort of, it was, I mean, I came, when I woke up, I was, I was sort of very happy. I was like, you know, <laughs> jubilant. I was on a lot of drugs and I was just, whoa. You know? <laughs> but I also was haunted by it. Mm. It's like my whole being had been turned inside out. It was like, um, it was purgatory. I had mm. been judged and in my questioning what was happening, why, why it was happening, that had been turned back on itself, saying, well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you why this is happening. Mm. And all the time I'm going, but I, I'm not guilty of that, I'm innocent of that. And it, it, I, came, I woke up thinking, my God, that was, that was pretty mean, what, mm. I, what I experienced. And if, if purgatory exists, it's man-made. We do, you know, awful things to ourselves, and it is... Um, it's where our mind goes it's a reflection it's mm. reflected back and we've magnified it so this experience and I'd say it's like at the edge of life because mm. I did not know that mm. I was at the edge of death for a long mm. time um, I couldn't I couldn't visualise my own death I could only I only knew that I wasn't going to die at a, a halfway through mm. when I'm kind of like balancing on the edge of a feather over a body mm. of water which is incredibly like strong, vivid experience. Mm. So, um, yeah, definitely one you don't forget. Mm. Also, it could be that, you know, I was on a lot of pain medication afterwards and I've found out since that one of them, and it's called gabapentin, um, which I stopped taking about two years ago, actually suppresses memory. So huh. I woke up and I couldn't, I couldn't hold new memories. So I think for a lot of the time it's because of trauma in my brain so I, mm. over the next six months I kind of like I, I lost my fingernails I lost most of my hair I lost an awful lot of weight I was sort of like extremely skeletal so memories you know if I couldn't grow new hair and nails, <laughs> I couldn't hold new memories either wow. and so this incredibly intense experience was vivid and it's what mm. I the most vivid thing I, I had could hold on to mm when I couldn't hold on to anything else. So um, over the next few years, I was able to unpick it and go, mm. aha, that's why, that's the logical reason for that. Because I, oh, I need to have answers mm. to things. And, and there has to be a logical mm. reason. I don't for one minute think that I met hell, Norse goddess hell, <laughs> or was judged over the, you know, on the, the, on the edge of a feather. Um, or was on the wheel of life. You know, even though I, I experienced all these things, I think they are um, a physiological um, uh, experience. Um, mm. they're, a, they're born out of stories we hold and language we have. Mm. And so, um, 
Yeah. I mean, it's interesting when you talk about these experiences, you're now talking about them from the point of view who's, of someone who's trying to rationalise them as well. Mm. You know, thinking what is going on in my head at this point, what is going on in my body, what is going on in terms of my reaching into, I don't know, mythology I experienced as a child or something. Obviously, when you're turning Dan's diaries into comic, it's just narrativizing events that actually happened. Mm. But when it comes to turning those more experiential moments of kind of fantastical experiences that were just going on in your unconscious into a comic. Have those two processes felt different to you? Um, yes. <laughs> um, well, yeah. <laughs> in terms of drawing, mm. um, like Dan's, it's, it's, in, in a way it's easier because are, these are places that exist mm. and I can go. And the way I work, I need, to, I need to see things. I need to actually properly see it to be able to draw it or, or visualise it or whatever. So it is a very different, I'm going to be going around and kind of like everywhere that I sort of, I, I mentioned and hear experiences, I've, I've got to go and I've got to be able to see it from lots of different angles. Mm. During the coma, I've got to watch that I don't have everything up front. I want to create a world that you can actually properly travel in mm. as well. It's got to, it's, it's up from the bed. It's like, you, I want you to be, in real time with me, in the mm. way that I did not know what was going, what was coming. I don't want anybody else to know what was coming either. Mm. I want you to like be in the moment. Dan's is, is reflective as well, mm. so it's not only talks about what what they did, an awful lot about food. It's amazing <laughs> about food, and there are light bits of mine too. My role as a mother plays a massive part in it. It's sort mm. of like that's a massive driving force, mm. um, but. Yes, it's about creating that world. And then I have these tableaus that I just want to... It's hard work creating a world. I want to just yeah. kind of like just stick them on the page, you know, pretty things. And well, particularly like if you've got a desire to make that world coherent. It's yes. one thing just to present surrealistic images that relate to the dream world. But if you've also got a desire to turn them into some kind of coherent landscape, yeah. you're having to order your yeah. own experiences in yeah. a way that tell a story. Yeah, and I have a sort of like... So there's the internal coma... And then there's the actual coma itself, which I created as a, as a character. Um, and then I've got all of these other elements that play roles in it. So, you know, like influenced by Dante's Inferno. And then if, I want to be able to tell stories within stories. Mm. So it's a little bit actually about the experience itself, because um, I kind of like gave a talk saying that, you know, in, at the beginning of this, I didn't have a blueprint for... There was nothing in my childhood... Mm. that prepared me for for any of that experience mm. and then in the end it's like well actually yes I, I all of these stories that I held in my head were the experience so it was all all pre-written mm. it's like um but also I mean there's that thing where you know if you had any sort of vivid experiences of fantastical elements that you're absolutely sure that you never experienced in terms of stories or film mm. or whatever, that in of itself is kind of exciting and frightening. It is. And I and I'd say about half of the half of them I had no mm. like I I have racked my brain because like, mm. you know, in the last six years I've had to kind of like rebuild my memory and um, and I can hold, you know, I can I can keep new memories now. I can like 
finish I know what I don't know masses of words but I can like you know I can string a sentence together as before mm. I, I couldn't string a sentence together and I I've sort of gone back and go well did I know that story was I aware of that mm. but actually I say about half of it I wasn't mm. I didn't have I, so I think like some of it so at one point I I do see um and early on again in the first night being in hospital I'm sedated and but I'm conscious mm. and Nurses always come up and introduce themselves and go, hello, I'm such and such, I'm going to do this to you. I mean, it's just like, and it's like, whatever. And they, but they also, if they think you're delirious, they mm. say, do you know where you are? Mm. But I'm waking up and I'm looking at these nurses and their faces are half skulls. Mm. And, um, and they're asking me if I know where I am and I'm, and I can't speak. I have no record. And I might have had conversations because then I think the next day I was having conversations, mm. but I have no I have no recollection of it. I just know that all I am is very frightened, you know, um, and a lot of pain and very frightened. Mm. And that I know that they've given me all the painkillers they can give me. They can't give me any more, but it's not actually, it's mm. not making any difference. Were you rational in those moments when you're seeing nurses with skull faces? Are you I thinking, it. you weren't thinking, oh, this is the drugs making me no, see skull no, faces? No, because people. the last rational moment was when I saw the medieval skeleton and right. I was slightly going, in the way that I'd been tweeting a few hours before, going, oh, the pain in my neck is a pain in the arse. I was like, it's like, going, oh, you know, because I like to see the funny side of things. Mm. And I couldn't see the funny side of that. That was just mm. pure fear. Mm. So, um, and it changes, what I felt changes throughout pure, you know. Oh, oh I have to say, though, the nurses, I, it's only earlier this year, and that's we've gone away, a few of us have gone away, and was it a comics retreat? Did we call it a comics retreat? But we went away for a weekend, and Simon was there, and he was drawing for his project, he was doing some mythological characters, and he, he was drawing um, help from Norse myths, and she's an underworld goddess, and she um, she's the goddess of people who are, die from um, illness or are infirm. So I'm kind of mm. like looking at that and going, that's slightly just blown my mind because mm. that's the first time I've seen her. It probably isn't the first time I've seen her, but the first sure. time I've seen her in that form. And I was like, oh my God, but that's that's who I saw, mm. you know. Um, well, there are some theories. I mean, I think it's, you know, still described as pseudoscience, but people think there is the possibility that memories are also passed down in DNA, that you inherit yeah. things that your parents, your grandparents, your yeah, great-great-grandparents I, I experienced. I think... Yes, yeah. Because otherwise I, it doesn't make any no, sense. No, it know? doesn't. And there's some things that I think are kind of like that we hold and collectively we hold mm. as memory. There's also things like that. I think, well, my logical mind goes, well, you know, my mind, my body's telling me that you're half dead. So how do you visualise mm. half dead? There's a commonality. It's, yeah. yeah. So it's like, how do you visualise that? Well, that's my, that's my body and my mind representing that in this these terrifying people saying to me, do you know where you are? Mm. And I'm like, going, I'm in hell. I don't know where I am. It's just not, not nice. In terms of trying to rationalise uh, the mythology that you kind of created for yourself, where you say a crow equals death, rabbit equals fear and, and so on, did you come up with the image first, thinking this shows the various encounters with creatures that I encountered and I'm putting them into a single image and then did you try to interpret what that meant having created the image or did the two go hand in hand? So I, early on I'd started using animals before mm. I got to this, before the myths came into it. The myths are kind of like came later with this like 
like the realization that my my hallucinations my visions actually exist in one from another in, in other underworld myths which mm. was a slightly blew my mind a little bit i was like whoa that's a bit weird you know um but i'd already been thinking about how to tell this story you know and i was going to start by um turning myself into a rabbit as prey animal because there are two there are two points there's in the 15 day coma the first week is nothing but fear mm. so i i and i was being accused of things all the time and i was in denial of you know i did i wasn't guilty and i know there's other stories of like in the underworld that that if you admit a guilt then you're then you're you're fast-tracked to the pit or whatever. So it's, it's quite interesting that actually my response ties in with other kind of mm. like underworld stories. So I'm actually just following this a well-trodden path, as it were. <laughs> um, but I just wanted to... It just felt very natural to draw myself as a prey animal and then later draw myself as both prey and hunter. So, um, And the turning point was the point where my children came in um, and I started fighting to live after my children came in. They also gave me a kind of drug. It was a, a point where either the drug's going to work or they weren't. They couldn't do any more surgery. They'd reached the point where mm. it was just, you know, it, it was such a fine line. It was in balance. So I can imagine these conversations being had within mm. my earshot and mm. me interpreting them, kind of like mm. how to interpret balance, how do I do that? So... Yeah, lots of these things exist. All of these things existed. Mm. And then the myths came later. This lexicon of of creatures and interpretation existed. <laughs> so I actually had just gone, oh, okay. So now I know that there's an Egyptian myth is the feather of truth. Uh. And I know that <clears throat> in um, Chinese underworld myth, there's the wheel of life, which is um, a spinning disc that you're on. Having gone, travelled through different layers of uh, Chinese purgatory. I think there are ten layers there. They don't, that's it's pretty nasty, you know. They don't do things by half. <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> and, but you get to the end and you're on the wheel of life and you're either reborn back into your old life, mm. which happened in my case, or, you're, or you, you die and you're born into a new life. Um, and I do actually have... have vivid memory of spinning to the surface and it being very very white and very bright mm. so my brightness was not going like the golden gate to, to heaven it was actually back to reality mm. um and at that point i did admit to a guilt i did, <laughs> I did admit to something because i knew i wasn't going to break the surface and unless i did which is just really weird so i'm probably shouting out, out to these dogs yes She's like, Emily, ten pounds, okay. <laughs> You've got me. And um, what I was accused of early on was pretty awful. It was just the most heinous of crimes, and I kind of wow. like, I knew in my heart that I could not have done done that. So that's much for that's at the bottom of the of the serpent. But um, but I've spoken to somebody else who who <clears throat> had um, had been in a coma as well, and he mm. also experienced the the wheel of life. Mm. And so I'm thinking it must just be something optical that mm. we actually, you know, our brain is getting a bit confused, but it must be this a phys- phys- physiological kind of like event. Mm. So Interesting. So I guess as you were thinking about the comic, as you were drawing the comic, um, you recognise that there is imagery 
that had been used by other people in terms of depicting mythology. Is that what led you to use this kind of medievalist picture framing for some mm. of the pages, or was that something that came from a different source? No, that was just in... in I started doodling around with the... Because I, I'm talking about purgatory. Mm. And, um, <clears throat> and I, I've since learned that purgatory came... You know, it's it's not written in the Bible or anything mm. like that, but it was a means of making money for, I think, <laughs> you know, the Catholic Church. The Bible isn't long enough. I need more bits in yes. it. Yes. <laughs> um, but also the fact that my the starting point in my visions, which I've said a few times, was the med- medieval skeleton. So I actually wanted to just explore that. And um, also I loved how they could be quite playful. So mm. that you could have, excuse me, kind of like, stories upon stories and different narratives. And also it gave me, I, since I had these characters that I'd created, you know, the, the rabbit is, is fear and the, the crow is death and the, the headless beast is actually the coma itself. And, I, mm. and it's, um, it's my guide through the harrowings. It's um, like I said, for it's, it's my Virgil. I'm sort of like, I'm within the body. I'm, I'm, I'm actually mentally within the body of the coma and mm. I wanted to have this this creature that would actually I'd be carried within the belly of. Um, but I, I quite liked the idea of doing kind of like frames because I could tell the story in a different way. So mm. I just needed to give myself a bit more work to do. So it's like not enough. Um, I think I might I might actually just kind of have a different one just keep them for a chapter so, you know and do the same one for the same chapter but I kind of I did start sort of like doodling my sketchbook all the medieval elements mm. um and that's then that I thought thought <clears throat> I'm just going to kind of like run with this like I love playing around with um materials I love charcoal just makes me kind of like slightly hum inside so it's like <laughs> I always wait for my creative tuning fork to just go hum and and that's the charcoal does that, so um, yeah, I'm a bit greedy. I want it all. But it's it's nice in a way that because you have these two different forms of narrative, a realistic one and a fantastical one, mm. it means in the fancy sequences you can be more experimental with the rendering. You can use different media and mix them together, yeah. perhaps in a way that you wouldn't normally. Yeah. Also, I wanted to kind of show that this is like you know, having an infection, you know, a life-threatening infection. Or, or actually, you know, it wasn't that long ago. It was not life-threatening. It was, it yeah, just simply yeah. died, you know. And, you know, people, you know, get infection, die all the time. It's part of being human. And so I wanted something that was just, had a feeling that it's always been, there's nothing unique about getting, you know, a deadly infection. Mm. Um, but the way that you experienced it was unique. And that's what you're rendering on the page. Yes. Yeah. But I don't know if it is. I don't know if it is because you know, I I you know, read other other people's stories from the edge of life, and mm. they bring these stories back, and people think they're kind of like bigger than they are, and they mm. create um, myths and stories and even religions around them. Mm. And so um, it's nothing in a way; it's nothing new. Mm. But I'm just trying to find my own way of sort of telling it, and just yeah. Mm. So and yeah, I make. Because I need to see what I'm drawing. Um, and also, I was spending far too much time trying to sort of like figure out what my characters were doing. Mm. So I make little little models. And then sometimes I'm not happy with the models I make. I make more models. And I just quite like making them because 
they're quite enjoyable and it gives me a break from drawing. Well, you, could draw do, a lot. you could do a Dave McKean and cheat in some of the panels and just photograph the models and stick that in. <laughs> I, lo- I love turning them and playing with them and seeing where they go. And um, yeah, Dan's um, diary, drawn in charcoal and pencil. And as I say there, it's kind of like it's the emotional heart of, of the story because it's a story as well, you know, mm. so... Um, Dan keeps telling me you can cut bits of it out, but it is the emotional heart of the story. And um, and then there's transition where I, it's the parts where I don't have memory, but it goes from you know talking about how the infection is actually born out of myself and it's mm. my own body mm. that's um, a, it's the infection within bacteria within my body that's actually killing my body. And um, and I. I I love animals. I love snakes. I hate kind of like drawing them as kind of like the, the villains and things. But in a, in a way, it's sort of it's the Ouroboros. So it's it's mm. the sort of it seems to make sense, you know. So it's just kind of like this, this you know, yeah, this the serpent within me. And then uh, the coma sections. I wanted them to to have that lushness of a medieval manuscript. Mm. The, the project in and of itself will obviously have a certain educational quality to it because you're experiencing your uh sharing your experience but because you've kind of been forced to share some of these behind the scenes drawings for the arts foundation it actually means you're able to share your process as well which is quite nice as an educational experience yeah so i have my sketchbook beside me and then i can then i'm I'm working on um quite small i kind of don't know how many inches it is but they're probably they're actually about this size that okay. I'm actually drawing on every day so and then a five then yeah, yeah and then I'll blow them up and I'm already sort of like making notes where I'll sort of like where I can keep things and I can excuse me move things along or where I want to actually keep the scaler at scale they're at and pull them out so I don't want it everything to be kind of like forward I want to have a real sense of depth that you mm. can actually you can journey in and, and it's and it's a believable world that's mm. that's being created so this is from a little bit later on this is um this is on the edge of the um feather and this is yama who starts off as a sort of just a gentle old soul and then in mm. my in my vision he he was a gentle old soul mm. um with a lot of a group of other bearded men it's so weirdly <laughs> sort of like so they all come like big beards come like Chinese and um and they were whispering and they were whispering my fate you know? <laughs> and it was it was quite magical standing on the edge of a feather hearing your fate whispered on in the breeze and it was just like wow you know mm-hmm. um I was like oh okay I'm gonna live that's cool it's it's quite interesting though to see that you've thumbnailed the fantastical parts and the realistic parts in the same way. And then the final rendering goes in different directions. Yes. So do you use the thumbnailing as much to break down the narrative in terms of the story beats rather than dictating the art that will emerge from it? Yeah. It's just to kind of like, it's it's just getting the, the balance and I'm just, you know, yeah, working. It's, it's kind of, it feels very, very labour intensive, but I want it to kind of, I'm, I'm always thinking about the pacing and, and what am I going to keep in? What Where's the focus, you know? Do I need to have all of those kind of like panels? Um, but I need to see them first to know whether I do or don't need them. And the scenes especially of, you know, Dan walking home with my, my bag of clothes, you know, this is from the, the realisation that it's not, it's, um, it's not just a pain. <laughs> it's more than that. Mm. Um, and it's, 
and and I wanted to show just the the loneliness of that as well. So, um, but I need to feel it. I need to be in there at the moments and give it time to breathe. Mm. So I'm always thinking, going, am I am I am I holding it too long? Do I need to move it on? <laughs> and so I'm just at the moment I tend to do scenes in over three spreads. I seem to be comfortable with that. I'm like okay. going. Or maybe I can cut that bit out. I don't know. So it feels it. I don't know. I always think it's quite sculptural. So mm. um, it was only earlier. So I'd been I'd started doing it in the thumbnail, and I'd I'd yeah. got so far. I'd drawn the first part, and I didn't for a long time. I didn't want to look at anything else. I didn't yeah. want it to be um, t- to start telling different stories. I wanted to tell this story, yeah. and so I didn't want to kind of like confuse my mind um, mm. and stop just having that come in and then when I started making the connections I went that's really weird and what and and I saw a film uh, called the princess of Egypt or something like that and I saw this whole thing about the feather and um the weight of your hearts um balanced against the weight of a feather and, and if your heart's heavier than the feather then you won't um then you'll yes. you'll go to hell yes okay. so it's just then I start going well okay then then I'm going to look at Chinese mythology as well. And I know why I had a group of elderly Chinese men kind of like whispering, judging me. It's because I'd been, a few months before, I'd been in Chinatown in Liverpool. So in a way, I hadn't, before I got to that point, I was like, I'd already made these connections. But then I thought, well, for artistically then, I, I mean, the, view, the, the the scene was real, but then I'm actually, um, in my mind it was real, but then I can actually maybe to say because there's these other connections I, I started looking at Chinese myth because yeah. I think it was a mixture the experience was a mixture of childhood memory present so listening to sounds and words and everything that was going on and um and then everything you fear so yeah. I was raised a Christian we didn't have many children's books when I was growing up <laughs> I had, this is a lot actually I had Richard Scarry's The Busiest People and I had a picture Bible. So yeah. I, I think the message was there. I was to work hard and, um, and, and kind of like have faith. Um, so I grew up absolutely believing, having a belief in God. And then I got to a point when I was about eight or nine, I thought, I don't really like this. I think not many people that I actually think are particularly kind and nice around religion. And... Um, and definitely by the time I was 12, when I was like going, hold on, what, what role do women play in this? You know, <laughs> then, then it, was, it was gone. And for a long time, I'd be kind of like, you know, I'd watch myself if I'd say, oh, I don't believe. And I'd be like, oh, my gosh. You know? So it was definitely part of my, definitely part of my childhood. My, my grandparents, especially my grandmother, was, um, you know, incredibly religious. You know? So I came from a mix of kind of like Roman Catholic and um, and Church of England, God knows how they got together, but um, yeah. yeah. But I definitely do not now because I was raised with that, and then definitely by. Is, is that where you think the guilt comes from? Because you keep talking about guilt. Hmm. Why would you be guilty? I mean, um, you've got an infection. Yeah, but you don't. But you're not. But you're not. Yes. No, no, I see it. It's not it's rational. Just, yeah, yeah, but now, now you don't have any guilt. Yeah, but you still, you still ask. Uh, well. Um, no, <laughs> but but you still ask that kind of like question. It's like, what is happening? That's why it's happening, and how have I got myself to this well, point? Yes, I can see why me. Yeah, but the guilt thing is 
can see why you think it, but it's just so unfair. It is really unfair, but it's. I think it's everything when you're in an intense situation is magnified. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I, within my visions, I kill somebody, and come like in quite an awful way, and I actually got to see that body. Um, and it's quite graphic. And, actually, and is that in the book? Yeah. Uh-huh. But in in reality, it was me that I was seeing. Wow. So, um, so yeah, it's a kind of like it's not a rational world. It's one when, when fear is, is the dominant factor. It's, you know, there's that whole flight or fight. But, you know, mm. what comes with flight, you know, it's just, yeah. Mm. Think it was about guilt anyway, isn't it? I mean, you talk about your early, and then and then when you were twelve, feeling guilty because you were like, I don't believe in you. Yeah. I mean, that's what you're taught if you're brought up in a religious background, isn't it? As far as I understand, yeah. I mean, I wasn't. I guess in purgatory, you know, people, it's, you know, it's about accepting your misdemeanors, your your yeah. imperfections, your, you know, it's about facing yourself. Yeah. And a lot of this was kind of like coming, it's having these things thrown at you, and you go. It's like, is this me? Is, am I capable of doing this? Mm. Did I do this? And then it's knowing yourself. So, um, and we very rarely have, very rarely are we actually standing in judgment of ourselves in such a harsh, critical, brutal way. Mm. And so I, I think that's what was actually happening. And being in denial um, mm. wasn't going get to me, get me through to the end, you know. Well, I think your ideas are much kind of broader than this, but on a sort of reductive level, a lot of your imagery, like the crow, the rabbit, the skeleton, the the monster with no head, all of these, I mean, Jung, and you're probably aware of this, Mm -hmm. sees a kind of archetype of the trickster. And and the trickster is always on the balance of life and death Mm -hmm. and laughs at them in the Mm -hmm. way that you do. You Mm -hmm. seem like quite a trickster-ish. (laughs) <laughs> and so, uh, uh, in just the way that you've managed to kind of smile at trauma, and that's that's kind of what the trick does. That's what yeah, but yeah. he does just before you know, he's the yeah. figure we all recognise. So I wonder, uh, uh, is that something that you've kind of looked at? Because he talks about all of those figures in, in the archetype book on the tricks. Um, yeah, I guess so. I don't know because I, 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 you know, I don't want. Um, I don't know how people are going to interpret it, and people will see. I know already people will see different things in it, and I know that from my experience, I just see this kind of, um, you know, th- these visions, and I try and find a logical like response to them and logical route. Why? Why did I see that? And is it because of the language we use? And and just, I don't think there's any. There's, I don't think I know there's nothing out there, you know, and it. For me, it would have been the, the, the easiest thing to do that through all of that, and it sounds kind of, would just be to die. Dying would have been easy. It's actually being kept alive and coming back was just awful, you know. And I'd question, like, later in my life, if I if I'd want to go through that, I know why I wanted to stay alive. It's because there's a point when um, my children come in and um, when, at that point, we, you know, dancers, it was just, they thought it might help if I was to hear them. And mm. I might, um, it might be the trigger. Um, and thankfully it was because I was just, I could not believe they were in the same space. It's the most fearful, horrendous place. And my children were there. 
And who, who the hell thought that was a good idea? You know? <laughs> and I knew that I had to save them from something, but I didn't know what from. I knew that they were going to be experiencing something that was so seismic that, that emotionally they should not have to experience. So even though I couldn't see it, I, none of this could I make sense of at the time. But like only later I figured well, they, they shouldn't have to experience the death of their mother you know, at, at such a young age. And so that was the catalyst to come back. All the way through, I probably felt like I was trying to dodge. So a little bit of a dick trickster, you know, I'm trying to... But it was the rage that kind of, like, brought me through. And that's, you know, it's... Um, Overcame the trickster. Yeah. So it's kind of like, at one point, you're just, you're at the receiving end. And then actually, you you know, what happens is then you try and take control of the situation. And, you know, the first, I won't say it because I know, but the first <laughs> words, you know, when I'm actually could open my mouth when the, the ventilator was taken off, was, you know, filled my mouth and I told the nurses to, you know, off. And then they said, you don't mean that. I went, yes, like, do. And I told them again. And it was just kind of like, so that it was, but it's the adrenaline and it's the, the hormones raging through your body and the, the everything that just starts to kick things off and, so even though I couldn't, my brain was kicking and I was kicking and I was, you know, I hate the word fight because um, I think I'm sure people must have used that word around me because um, I was like, mm. a bit like the eye of Sauron, you know. <laughs> have I pronounced that right? Sauron. In Lord Sorry. of the Rings, when it's just kind of like scanning the landscape, looking for answers. So anything that just would help me make sense, <laughs> my, my kind of like my brain's eye just, you know, went in there. And then I'd be reinterpreting, well, what role is that in the story? Where does that play out? So you're actually always looking for answers. So this is just the brain just needing to know what's happening and just trying to find a way through. So I don't think, as again, I know, there's nothing else other than just us trying to make sense of our, our world and what, what happens. And then these things get projected out. You know, I even think, you know, when you think about balance and a feather, we think about the fragility of a feather in all cultures everywhere. Birds exist everywhere. We marvel at feathers. We've all watched a feather come, like, go, you know, just drop down. And so I, I think that, in a way, it's a beautiful metaphor globally, how, you know, how we think about the fragility of, of life. Yeah, I've wandered off again. I digress. <laughs> what, what I'm really curious about is you now have an editor, and the story is intrinsically fascinating. Mm. You know, take the emotion away. A lot of people know you, have known you for a long mm -hmm. time, so they, we all have a lot of emotion around your story. But zoom out and go, headline, you know, of this experience. Mm. It would be intrinsically interesting. But how do you depict this story and separate the experience you've gone through to try and go, Jesus Christ, what the hell was that mm -hmm. on existential, personal, religious, whatever mm -hmm. terms, and then working with an editor, turning it into something that's interesting for someone from you know, the Outer Hebrides, who has no idea who you are, yeah. but has picked yeah. up a graphic novel that goes, oh, this might be interesting. So that's my starting point was like, who would want to read a story like as harrowing as this, mm. you know? So um, actually when the myths, like Dan's diary actually really helps because that's like, now we have a timeline and we have what happens, you know, that's really interesting. What happens to a community? People coming together. Gosh, they want to nurture with food and, you know, offers of lifts and things. And people behave amazingly and organise themselves to support people who are going through trauma. That's really interesting. I think for me, it's sort of um, what's having the, the headless beast. It's actually at the top of its head. 
is a door, and that's like a hospital door into my world. And what's been really interesting is that's a recurring theme. So as, as we go through the, um, uh, the, the sort of like the spirals, the purgatory, we go through the layers of it, it's about this relationship between this, this, this door mm. and, um, and communication and the connection between um, you know, my world and Dan's world and how we try and we're, 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 we're communicating sometimes like I don't know he's communicating with me and other times he doesn't know I'm communicating with him and what's slightly blew me away it took me quite a few years to be able to read Dan's diary and be objective about it like I read it a year after events and I was just sobbing I was like oh my god it's terrible I don't think you've read it since have you no, but um, I suppose the thing is to turn it into a really good story that other people want to read as opposed to just our thing, really. Isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, the, the, the myths is interesting, mm. but it's also the kind of like the interpretation of the means of trying to communicate. It's, there's funny moments, too. It's not all, you know, awfully, you know, harrowing well, and grim. Think, it's just the, like... The thing that's wonderful, I think this is a hallmark of what Mary does, is this publishing books about people... I've used this analogy before. It's like travel writing. Straight up travel writing is, I'm never going to go to the Czech Republic, but I'd really like to read a book by someone who did and find out what's (laughs) interesting about it. This is, I've never lived through a coma and Mm. amputation. Jesus Christ, what's that like? Yeah. You no, know, but also and, we know that it's on our spies. I mean, I don't know if you're going to make that clear in the... Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm sick of using my name. <laughs> and it's just kind of like... you reading it knowing that you wrote the book afterwards so we know that you survived? It's going to come out with a kind of like... somebody else's <laughs> story. <laughs> I died. So, yeah, <laughs> 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 and the Spoiler alert. Yeah, I think it's definitely, it's gonna, I know the end is like actually a day or two after the kind of waking up and, um, and it's, it's, you know, it's just some things you can't make up. Actually, they brought me out of the coma on my son's birthday. So Dan was actually, there's, there's things are happening. Like, so not only are people feeding my children and my family, there's Ted's birthday to arrange, you know? And so this little boy is is hoping to get, I won't say what the gift is, but this is, I love these little moments when you're trying to get this present. And so there's like, in the diary is this whole, yeah, I was going to give a secret. Um, but there's a whole thing of like, oh, we haven't managed to get it yet. Oh, we had to go here. And then we had to, so it's like a story of this kind of like, it's like, you know, will it arrive on time? Will it not? You know, fam, you know, family life actually trying to keep it together. And it's, it's, silly as well mm. so you know there's points where I'm, they must have said they were taking the children off to eat and i'm like going in my mind i'm going he only eats fish fingers for god's <laughs> sake you know so it's just like the parent is kind of like coming out so it's just that the sort of like the mundanity of everyday life when you're you know where you're you might be seeing kind of you know balancing on feathers and having these weird things happening but also there's that normality that you're you're relating to as well mm-hmm. i mean yeah it's uh so I, hope, I, I you know it's, it's a human story but also it's about i guess it's about our global collective memory and the myths and the stories we hold and you know and people will read into that and say well it might be in your dna or it might be you know come from here or there and who knows you know where those stories come from so sorry slattery 
Thank you very much. For more information about the condition that Zara suffered that led to her coma and amputation, please visit the Lee Spark Foundation, which deals with support and education for necrotizing fasciitis. You can find them at nfsuk.org.uk. Zara Slattery's amazing graphic novel, Coma, is released on the 13th of May, and you can find more info about the book by going to myriadeditions.com stroke books stroke coma. That's M-Y-R-I-A-D editions.com stroke books stroke coma. Zara's website can be found at zaraslattery.com, that's Z-A-R-A-S-L-A-T-T-E-R-Y.com, and you can find more info about Cartoon County, which is currently running as an online discussion, by going to cartooncounty.com, and our next event, featuring a Q&A with graphic novelist Alex DeCampi, is taking place at the end of this month. Another interview broadcast with Zara was about her interest in classic arcade games. And you can find that by going to panelborders.wordpress.com and looking for today's show, Fantastical Visions, and clicking at the link at the bottom of the post. Next month's programme is unbelievably the 500th episode of Panel Borders. So tune in to hear a nostalgic look at the release of the anthology The Inking Woman, with co-editors Nicola Streeton and Kath Tate. You can find all previous episodes of Panel Borders by going to our website, www.panelborders.wordpress.com, where you can find interviews with the likes of Charlie Adlard, Patrice Aggs, Laura and Mike Allred, David B., Hannah Berry, Doug Braithwaite, Eddie Campbell, Becky Cloonan, Rebecca Isaacs, Simone Lear, David Lloyd, Alan Moore, Woodrow Phoenix, Walt Simonson, Jill Thompson, Bernie Wrightson, and many, many more. The 500th episode of Panel Borders will be broadcast on the first Wednesday in June at 5.30pm. And until then, as ever, thanks for listening. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.